This is a Strategist episode 1055. My name is Zane Velji. With me as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan. Guys, let's not talk about the arena because we are talking about everything but the arena. You guys have had all the time in the world to talk about the yeah, arena. Yeah, we talked about the arena. Yeah, I heard, was I heard you talk about the arena. Yeah. I, heard you, I heard you talk about the arena. I've never seen tweet her tweet about the arena. I, I liked her tweet about the arena. I thought it was very... Very it helpful. was a little on the nose for my taste. It was on the nose. Yeah, look, let's let's dice. So we talked about we talked about it on our Patreon. I know, yeah, you did, so. I know you did. Yeah. So I'm trying to push it. It's like you think are I you don't. Plugging? Oh my okay. God, man. did you actually like, listen? Okay. I'm you in don't God mode listen. here, Carter, and I don't think you understand. Well, you're an atheist, so you wouldn't understand. No, I don't understand. But this is this is me in God mode, just trying to help the pod, even if I'm not on it. Two out of three times, she was only one third. Of she's never been more angry than that pod, except maybe the time when I won the argument about. People. When you came out against yeah. children, yeah. children. Yeah, someone, we should, someone should tell Annalise that the host does not get to have opinions on this show. Okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Who's that going to be, Zane? Who's that going to be? <laughs> not me. Not me. Obviously not you. Yeah, no, yeah. no. If she wants to have opinions, she can weave them in through a very long uh, preamble and then a subsequent postamble. Okay. Uh, <laughs> she should fucking learn the ways of this the show. The ambling. Yeah, yeah you, that's how you keep the authenticity and the integrity yeah. of the show, it, right? That's how I do it. I've done it yeah, masterfully for you have, 10, you're amazing. 10, 1055 episodes. Sans however many. Uh, Carter, you're doing well otherwise? Uh, do I need to check in on you uh, on this on this fine Thursday evening? No, I mean, I obviously have lost my mind about all the election stuff, but I'm okay. I mean, uh, you know, I calmed down after the arena announcement, and I think uh, I'm pretty, pretty level-headed right now. Thanks for checking in, though, Zane. Oh, uh, it has it been is- tumultuous. It is a distinct pleasure. Uh, Corey yeah. Hogan, anything we need to talk about before we get going? He won't stop talking about the AFL oh, stuff. Oh, my so. God. This is a great week for me. I have mm-hmm. made selections. I'm quite certain I'm going to go nine for nine. And then I also did a little bit of reading up on the uh, the new potential mm-hmm. uh, stadium in Tasmania. And okay. I got to be honest with you. I think it has to be covered. I don't think there's any point in building it if it's not you a mean covered, covered sta- by the public? Or no, covered stadium. <laughs> like a okay. covered stadium. <laughs> Just, yeah, because I was going to say that's a bit of a twist. Yeah, yeah. yeah given no, your previous uh, statements on this matter, no, believe me. I mean, the 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 feds are making a significant investment, but at two hundred and thirty million dollars, it's just not enough. I think that you know we need to see a, sign- a more significant investment. This is Tasmania uh, that we're talking about Tasmania, here. Tasmania, after all, it is, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah. this isn't you know it's not the Bronx. You know, we have certain expectations. What, what does that mean? I don't know what the, the fuck that I means. I mean, that's where Yankee Stadium is. Yeah, is this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Yankee Stadium didn't. Need We're going to move it on to our first segment, our oh. first segment, Stephen Carter. It is the strategy check. We're going to check in on a few things okay. uh, that uh, I feel like have a strategic component to them. We're going to do this relatively quickly, rapid fire order, because I want to get to our main topic at hand. It's fucked. Carter, Dane. I want It's oh, not fucked. Oh, I'm just going to add this is, this is no options. No options, okay. Carter. Okay. The RNC. Joe Biden announces he's running for president. The RNC, Republican National Committee, also known as the GOP, put out a 30-second AI-generated ad into the future if Joe Biden is reelected. It's got scenes of San Francisco under arrest, migrants flooding bridges and the border, just you know, a, a society that is failing and crumbling. Talk to me about the strategy here. Do you feel like this was warranted? Do you feel like this is just what we're expecting? Talk to me about the 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 RNC strategy here very quickly. What do you think they're trying to do? And what do you think they're trying to do being so 
um, naked with the AI generated and so over the top? Are they trying to normalize certain things for the future? Give me your take. When you first thought, saw it, what are they trying to do? Corey, same question to you coming in a second. Well, I think that, you know, uh, the Republican Party is to politics as Spinal Tap is to documentaries. Everything is turned up to 11 and nothing makes sense anymore. They are a joke uh, to anybody who's kind of watching from the outside, but they honestly believe what they, th- they're they doing. And, and you know, I watched the ad and uh, it didn't have much in the way of impact upon me. It didn't, you know, I, I was just like, well, this feels an awful lot like the Daisy ad. Uh, what year was that? 1964, when we first saw the Daisy ad that was, you know, taking explain to, down. Explain to people the yeah. Explain to people the Daisy ad if they're not familiar. Yeah, so the Daisy ad was really it's kind of targeted as one of the very first big negative television ads. It's the 1950s. I can't remember exactly what year. I can't remember who it's targeting. But in basically, what happened was that the uh, I think it was the Republicans. It might have been the Democrats. The basic no, the Democrats. Yeah, the Democrats it was against Goldwater. Yeah, it was against Goldwater. Basically, the idea is. Um, if you elect Goldwater, we will no doubt be facing nuclear annihilation. And they did it by doing a countdown that led to uh, a nuclear explosion. So it wasn't exactly subtle. Um, it was, you know, the world will end if you elect Barry Goldwater. And I think it has to be noted that it was very successful. Um, it was the first big negative ad and it had big impact. And now we uh, now we're living in a world where everybody's using big negative ads. You know, Corey, I think it's almost success is almost be, be beyond the point for me, like whether this ad is effective or not. I, I'm just get, want to get your take around what they're trying to do by adding the AI label by going so over the top. Carter, you, Carter might say like this is their volume the and next- their rhetoric, but is there something that they're trying to do that in, in your mind around AI in particular and perhaps trying to normalize it? I don't think it has anything to do with normalizing AI. It it actually is everything to do with what Stephen said, interestingly enough, about uh, the ad against Barry Goldwater, which is it was the first. Like one of the reasons Mm. the Daisy ad was so effective is it was the first ad of that style. And people remembered it. And we talk about it to this day because it was something that was kind of like a, a bit of a watershed. And the reason why they went so hard on making sure we knew it was AI is because that was the hook. The, mm-hmm. the RNC for us to, puts out for us to watch it. You mean? Yeah, the RNC probably puts out an ad every couple of days. Correct. Yeah. You know, that's just the reality of it. And how many of them are you seeing? How many of them are you interested in? The fact of the matter is, they are being seen by their base, and they're being seen when they put money behind them so that they become paid ads. And what they wanted was a bit of an earned media bump by pushing this out there. And it's it's not a terrible gimmick, frankly, because here we are now talking about this particular Perfect ad. Here. Yeah. And whether we think that it was particularly artful or not, we also have talked about, Zane, you talked about at the start, the idea that it showed American chaos, you know, San Francisco in chaos, and, and what the stakes of another Biden... Uh, term would be according to the Republicans. So for me, it's kind of the oldest trick in the book. It's using novelty to get a media hook and using that media hook to spread your message. And and I think it was fairly effective in that sense. Was it a particularly good ad? No, not from an art point of view. But I do think maybe to the point you were driving at, Zane, I, I don't believe that our, like the RNC was trying to normalize AI through this ad, but I think AI will be normalized. And I think we are going to see a lot of AI ads in the future. In some ways, I'm surprised it took this long. 
Now, Carter, if I finish this off on this point, I've got one quick follow-up, even though I promised this would be quick. But oh, I mean, I was just thinking back to when we, we made so much hay with Nenshi's app in 2010. You know, we had, I think, less than 1,000 users of the app, um, but the app got huge media attention, right? Because it was the first use of an app in Canadian politics. And the, there is something to be said for the, the first use just being a hook. You know, did it change the outcome of the election? Maybe not the app, but certainly the coverage. And I, I would imagine that that's what we would see when when people actually put the tags on the AI and say, look, we're using AI and AI came up with this, that it has to be the end of the world. Um, you know, that's that's just a hook to get attention um, for another negative that just frankly wasn't wasn't that good. Corey, if you were to set the rules on this. Would you recommend that AI be labeled going forward? Let's just say this is the first and in the next year, let's use no. year as a window, that, that we're no, probably going to see significantly more. Tell me why. Well, because uh, so much of what you watch on television, whether that be Hollywood produced or whether it be a slick advertisement, it might not be AI generated, but it's fiction. You know, when you see a hamburger that looks delicious, it's fiction. There's a lot of fiction there, and this is just a different mm. tool to provide that. Do I think that the same truth in advertising standards should apply? Yes. Uh, and I think the bigger problem is that politics can get away with not being truthful in their advertisements. But but ultimately, I think that there's a certain art to it. And I don't really care if you used AI or if you rotoscoped it or if you animated it or you used any of the other number of storytelling tools we use. That's not of concern to me. And your eyes deceive you all the time. Frankly, AI is a little easier to see that you're being deceived than than a lot of the other more sophisticated tools that we use currently. Carter, same question to you. Would you would you want the label? Would you want an AI label on your political advertisements agnostic of jurisdiction going forward? I think only if it was simulating someone else's voice or images. Um, so the I think, you know, we we played around with Rachel Notley's voice at our um at our live show. live show, and I have uh, currently synthesized both uh, your voice and uh, Corey's for my own personal enjoyment. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> wait, let's just, oh, sorry, what? <laughs> you had me until uh, personal enjoyment. <laughs> let's just say you are quite the dirty talker. Anyways, um, you know, if I used your voice, then I would expect that that that, that should be at least. Noted. Stephen, this is a workplace. I need you to know that. Yeah. Like we, we fill out paperwork. We pay taxes. You know what? You've made an excellent point. And yeah, we're uh, no, I'd like Carter, to Carter, uh, yeah, apologize to Zane. Let's just strategy check. Uh, check this for me. CBC president yeah. letter, November 2022, reveals that she um, sent a letter to Pierre Polyev. She says, given that your leadership campaign, you publicly promised to defund the CBC, I would hope that spending some uh, some time to understand the organization would be useful. Effectively writing a note to say, please meet with me. You've rejected meeting with me. Please meet, we, meet with me. Please meet with me. I think Canadians can rightly expect that two of us have a responsibility to discuss the implications of your promise. With that in mind, extending my request again to meet with you. Good strategy, bad strategy. Explain to me what she's trying to do. Just, just a standard overture. We shouldn't look into it. We shouldn't think about it. Or was this a strategic, solid move, misplay? Give me your take. 
It's good strategy, bad execution. I, mm. You know, the passive aggressiveness of the letters, some of the phrases you even used right there, where it's like, I would have hoped that we could talk to each other about this. And given the things you've said, I think there's a certain churlishness there that will not play well with a lot of the people that Pierre Polyev's message is playing with. And it will be thrown back in the CBC's face as evidence that, you know, they don't like Pierre Polyev, look at the letter they sent, all of that. I think if the letter had been actually truly neutral and said like, hey, congratulations, we'd love to talk to you about the CBC, followed up three months later being like, hey, just don't want this to fall off your radar, we want to talk to you about the CBC, that'd be fine. But there's no there's no requirement that Pierre Polyev meet with the CBC, just as there's no requirement that Pierre Polyev meet with the head of any crown corporation in Canada, or, uh, you know, who, who might have concerns about what he might do, tradition be damned. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate the phrasings they used and the language they used in that particular letter because it undercuts the CBC's objectives and mission, and they should have played it a lot more straight. Carter, what do you think? What do you think of this strategy? I mean, uh, for you, if you're assessing it, was this a, a good move by the president of the CBC or not so much? I mean, I th- I totally agree with Corey. I mean, I think the tone was a, a tremendous mistake. Just just be absolutely earnest. You know, I, we really want to meet with you. Um, we'd like, lo- you know, we we meet with everybody. We 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 want to make sure that everybody understands our mission as we understand it. We want to make sure that any uh, questions are answered. Be completely earnest and over the top earnest. And I think that that gives you the opportunity then to to be above any political fray. Corey has spent quite a bit of time talking about how the CBC needs to be seen to be above the political fray. And again, as much as it pains me to to agree with him, I find myself just in this one instance uh, thinking that he may in fact be correct. So <laughs> sorry about that, Corey. Yeah. I feel bad. Yeah, no, I am. Um, it's it's yeah. it's out of turn, out of character for both of you. I want to go to our next one. That's yeah. true. Ch- check this out for me. Last week, we talked extensively about the Volkswagen deal, $13 billion. What oh. I want to get your check on, Carter, yeah. is the relative silence that we have seen from the opposition parties. Has Trudeau just put out a $13 billion deal that, at least in the short term, is going to face very little scrutiny? Pierre Polyev is focusing his attention elsewhere on the PSAC strike, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. And Jagmeet Singh is kind of trying to change the channel from it, too. Are you surprised? Give me the strategy check. What's going on here that no one is really going after this? Well, I think that in every political uh, conversation, you need to to say, okay, what votes am I getting uh, by taking this action? What votes am I giving up by taking this action? And I think that, you know, this may be one of those situations where you just don't want to give up any of those particular votes. Ontario is going to be uh, super important in any coming election. Um, the, the, uh, as much as anti-government funding and anti, uh, you know, anti-government rhetoric may play super well for Pierre Polyev out, out here in the West, it may not play quite so well in, uh, in, in, in Ontario, uh, in vote rich Ontario, as they lovingly say, uh, when talking about it. So, you know, it seems to me that the Pierre, I mean, we give Pierre kind of a hard time because we always feel like he's very immature uh, in, in his communication strategies. But maybe in this particular case, he's he's matured a little bit and isn't isn't just mm. taking um, the bite of the apple every every opportunity he gets. Corey, to that point, he hasn't taken a big swing. He's re- referred it to the PBO, if I'm not mistaken, to say, go do your estimates mm-hmm. on this. And, uh, you know, kind of the, the the version of kicking it to committee sort of thing. And then focused on other things that he feels like are more fruitful political pastures for him. Are you surprised at the 
political silence of the opposition leaders. Give me give me your, uh, your take on what's happening here. No, I think when we sit here in Calgary, it's pretty easy to forget what a big deal the PSAC strike is and just how all-encompassing that is to the conversation in Ottawa. When you've got a third of the public service in a, in a strike position, that obviously is going to have a material effect on day-to-day operations in ways that we don't necessarily feel right? It's not in our city. It's not, I mean, there are obviously federal public servants in our city, but you know what I'm saying. It's not like the heart of the federal government. And uh, the other thing is, I think that in some ways, I know we're not talking about the arena deal here in Calgary, but there is, there's a similar tactic that was available to Pierre Polyev, which is to say, I'm not so sure about this, right? And that's part of how he throws it to, you know, PBO to get different Mm -hmm, numbers. mm -hmm. It's kind of a buy time strategy that we saw Rachel Notley somewhat deploy the first day of the arena too, saying, well, you know, love hockey, can't help but notice that these numbers are a little bit different. Pierre Polyev saying, this seems like a lot of money. I'd like the PBO to weigh in on that. And and there's two benefits. One is it does kick the can to outside of this PSAC strike, potentially, right? Because that's, you know, that is going to consume activity right now. And the other is it allows them to buy time and see how this deal lands and Mm. see how the conversation goes. But don't kid yourself. The conversation is unfolding and trial balloons are being floated. Tires are being kicked. Messages being tested. Just today, Jack Mintz had a column about we've got to stop this almost green race to the bottom where we are all just throwing as much subsidy money as possible against against these projects, you know, ally versus ally. As uh, you know, we actually kind of talked a little bit. We about did. We did talk about that, and I think if if I'm not not mistaken, you you kind of supported that that broader sort of stream of thinking, if it's fair to say. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's it's a funny thing. I don't I don't know how enthused I am to be basically in that same kind of philosophical space, but I, I yeah, I mean, I think it's a reality that if we're just bidding against each other and we're the only two bidders, that's a real problem. And we're spending mm. a lot of public money beyond perhaps what was necessary. So those arguments are being field tested, I guess, is my point. And um, and when all of the attention turns back, when the PBO brings in their estimates, when there's another trigger to this conversation, this conversation can pick up. But right now, like there's a lot going on. There's the peace act strike. There's going to be, you know, the coronation of, of King Charles. I don't know if that counts as big or it's not. Huge. But like there's Epic. stuff going on. It's enormous. It's it's big. It's big. Boo. You should see uh, my, by the way, TikTok my, my about it. It's unbelievable. Uh, my mother in law. My mother in law met the king today. So really, that happened. Yes. Wow. Um, gross. G- gross. I know exactly. I love Carter. It. Yeah. Yeah. Carter. Um, my final strategy stack check. I want to start with you, and it's actually okay. related to this story. Okay. I want to do a bit of a zoom out. 2019, when Justin Trudeau was running for election, he had a big political foil in this country. Do you know who that political foil was? What the was one it? that he would run against. What was the that he was uh, running actively what year did against? You say I, I was really 2019. 2019. Was so it was Donald a, Trump. It was not Donald Trump. Donald Trump could be no. one of them, okay. but there was an, another more domestic political <laughs> foil. No, I, I don't know the question. I don't know what you're asking. The answer to My me, my friend, yeah, Doug Ford. Oh yeah. And now these two individuals, maybe last personified by the Volkswagen deal. Seem to be very chummy, and Doug Ford has said he's uh, he's a he has a ton of respect for Christian Freeland, but him and his uh, labor minister Monty McNaughton were side by side with Trudeau here. I want to discern for me what's happening. Is this a transactional love affair? Is this a real love affair? Is it that the conservatives have flown to, uh, federally have just gone too far to the right, and that the PC version that that Ford is selling domestically, where he has to snipe off votes 
from the more progressive parties has to align with Trudeau. Give me a strategy check on what's happening with Ontario provincial politics and the Trudeau relationship, because to many, this is another proof point that are they getting chummier or is this just simply transactional politics? Carter, you first. Corey, I want you to jump in on this. Um, It's so transactional. I mean, if you go back in history, you will see uh, provincial party leaders get very close to the federal parties and then move away. I mean, I think just in Alberta, you can look at, you know, Lougheed moving towards Lougheed moving away, Romano in, in, in Saskatchewan. I mean, you, every, every, every provincial leader, every mayor uh, will get close to their, their, their counterpart, their senior counterpart, and then back away. They'll get close when they're getting what they want and they back away when they're not getting what they want. And this is, uh, I, I think that we've all kind of underestimated Doug Ford. Um, he is a good politician. I think that that needs to be said now after, you know, the, the years of governing that he's put in and, and and how he's being seen. I mean, we don't have to agree with his policies to recognize that there's talent there and, and he's got some talent. And so this is just him being using his talents to ensure that he gets what he wants. And then it doesn't preclude him. Uh, from absolutely saying screw you to the to the to the prime minister next week if he doesn't get what he wants and and that's been proven uh, through through centuries of you know federal uh, provincial uh, interactions and before that colonies in the crown. Corey, this seems to be a bit of a narrative here, though. I could have asked you this about this about this the same question last year when they were getting close. They've announced research facilities together of the Emergencies Act. Yes, there was a bit of a difference, but they're kind of in lockstep around the moves that the prime minister had to take in certain cases. What's going on here? Give me a pulse check. Give me a strategy check in your mind. Well, look, I I think I agree with everything Stephen said, but there's a more fundamental point that needs to be underlined here. And it's actually the second time this episode, we've done a version of that, which is not everywhere is Alberta. You know, things look different to us as Albertans. And this idea of being in perpetual fight with the feds in a state of perpetual grievance, there's two provinces that are like that. There's Alberta and there's Quebec, right? And I, I think we forget pretty quickly that it's a different situation and a different feeling and different expectations from the electorate in other provinces. And they don't want, by and large, their provincial government to be in a state of perpetual warfare with the federal government. They expect their provincial government to find ways to work with the federal government to the benefit of the province. And uh, Doug Ford understands that. But to underline what Stephen said, it is a tale as old as time. They they will work together until it's advantageous not to work together. And that's true of both sides, by the way. Justin you don't Trudeau, think there's something fundamentally different here this time around? No, no. I, I, I think there is a reality that they've both been around long enough that they know each other's beats and mm. they do appreciate kind of the theater of it from both sides. And and they know that as much as one of them might dip into theater, they'll pull back to being a normal human being when they need to. And so in that sense, I, I think it's more about like kind of the benefit of having long-term politicians and the comfort they can develop with each other. But no, I don't think all of a sudden there's this like crazy bromance between the two. I, I think it's that they're both rather seasoned politicians at this point, And they know sometimes it's advantageous, as it was for Trudeau in 2019 to beat up on Doug Ford. Sometimes it's advantageous, as it was last year for Doug Ford to beat up on Justin Trudeau. And sometimes it's advantageous to get along. And, and they know that ultimately... They're all playing their part in this show, and and they will continue to play the parts as needed. And there's some comfort yeah. in that, knowing that it will kind of baseline on a regular basis as needed. Carter, you want to jump in before we we round up, mind this out? 
I think that it's it's really well understood to be talking of this as theater. Um, everybody in this is performing. There are performances all over the place, and that does not take away from uh, the you know the politics of things. In fact, it it really just underlines the politics. Um, understand that most of the time, the theatrics that you're seeing on television aren't real, right? Uh, Pierre, I don't believe Pierre's uh, the guy that we see on TV. I think that that's part you of don't? what bothers me is that I think that he is playing up things uh, in order to get attention. And um, he reminds me, you know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Like some of those, uh, well, I mean, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene is about a Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> you know what? We'll get it edited out. Go ahead. Go, try, try again. Yeah. Try again. Try again, yeah. Carter. Don't we get that yeah. taken yeah. out. Uh, let's note that part. Anyways, I think that uh, he's a lot like uh, Matt Gates in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> fucking carter okay we're gonna leave okay. that there we're moving on to our next segment our next segment strike three guys we want to talk about the PSEX strike uh okay are we okay yeah we want to talk okay about it. we want to talk sure. about it guys it's entered its second week this is the 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 strike that has public sector workers out on the streets continuing their strategic demonstrations outside of government locations uh the fed the delivery of federal services Corey, continues to to be affected uh, you just saw the immigration minister earlier this week say that 70,000 immigration files that should have been processed were put on hold. We're now seeing reports of passports uh, being slowed down. Um, there's many things at stake here. Uh, we'll get into some of the details, but I want to really use this segment to talk about the strategy of winning a labor war in the public, the strategy of winning public opinion. And we've seen success on this in the not so um uh, sort of distant past Carter with the, the QP Ontario campaign against Doug Ford, who seemed to be caught blindsided. This has different dynamics. This has got different players. It's a different union. The size and scope is different. Um, the, the, perhaps the texture and the diversity of the employees across this, this container that are being represented uh, is different. And the grievances are different, but there's interesting dynamics. Corey, we've entered week two. You've got the government that that you know is not going to use the back to work legislation. We've seen in the in the last week or so that the public um, is more on side with the union, but they're split. But most people are are kind of just not paying attention to it, as at least the polling indicates. Um, you also have a government that that is um, has a few sticking points as it relates to maybe not wanting to legislate in the bargaining agreement. Um, or enshrining it within the bargaining agreement, the right to remote work, which seems to be a big sort of uh, pusher. So there's some some of the the interesting dynamics here. I want to start with the most top line of questions to each of you, Carter. We're in the second week. Who's winning? <laughs> um, I don't think any, either of them is winning. I think that uh, you know as time moves along, uh, these things tend to favor the employees. In in my mind, I'm not. You know, I, and I, even as I say that, I, I'm not even sure I'm 100% convinced of that because they lose so much. Um, you know, you lose so much in the way of wa wages. You lose so much in the way of public support. Um, but you may pick up enough support. You may pick up enough momentum uh, to end the strike on your own terms. Um, 
you know, government has a tremendous amount of power in these situations and this government's chosen not to use it all. Uh, that's interesting. I think that that's an interesting decision because it gives me a sense that they don't see this as hurting them that much yet. Um, if, if it was hurting them, I think we would see different action because the end game for them is it, it almost always ends up in the same place. Um, almost all the time, government just can't simply settle and say, oh, everything's okay. Um, because there's some things that they're just sticking on. They just can't get past. And this, this, this particular strike, I just think right now is in the hurting everybody category, but not hurting everybody so much that they have to take action yet. I'm I'm going to come back to you on that. I want to get some more clarity on that on yeah. that answer. But Corey, I want to give you the same opportunity. Who's winning right now? Well, I said this in in an episode not too long ago. I don't think that as strikes go on, anybody wins. Right? Uh, ultimately, there is ill will that is built on both sides. It's difficult for management and workers to get back together and to bury the acrimony after the strike is resolved uh, because it's put pressure on on both parties in different ways. It's difficult to make up the wages you lose on a strike, Mm -hmm. right? If you're on strike for a week, that's effectively 2% of your salary for the year. You know, if you're on a strike for two weeks, that's 4%, three weeks, 6%. You're only asking for 9% over three years. Now, that's some of that's backdated, right? But, you know, that money disappears for a lot of people who maybe are going to leave before they'll ever recoup it. Or, you know, ultimately every week that goes on is really chewing in to even what that would mean. Like... It's not so simple, and I don't want to pretend it is, um, but if you are asking for 9% and you are on strike for three weeks, I mean, in some ways, if you were only going to be there for the next year or something, you'd be better off having accepted 3% before you get into the strike, just in like crass calculation terms, which is not to say that that is actually what they should have done. I want to be really clear on that, but my point is it becomes difficult for victory to be truly victory as strikes go on for both Hmm. sides, strikes or lockouts, any kind of work action here. And um, uh, on the flip side, those 70,000, you know, immigration applications, they're not fucking going away. They're still there. That work is still waiting. That's a backlog that's going to be affecting people. It becomes frustrating across the board for the government, for the managers in government, for the for the workers who come back to work, presumably, after a strike. So strikes are tough. And, hmm. and it's exactly why these things should be avoided. And again, that doesn't mean you don't go on strike. Right. It means that it's a real incentive for all parties to work together through mediation, uh, through through coming to terms. And, um, you know, it's it's unfortunate that we're here and um, there's a lot of reasons we're here and people will read into it different different things. But the reality is for a very long time, we have rather gleefully as a country kind of eroded, uh, you know, public sector wages, right? Mm. They're too high. We've got to grind them down. We can only give them 1%, 0% all of this time. And that has effects in the long term. And that's untenable in the long term. And it leads to situations like this. So uh, these things have to be managed and thought about in in kind of a long-term sense. And I think we have a lot of short-term thinking in government, and um, and this might be actually a bit of a symptom of that. Well, based on that co- comment, Corey, I'm going to now make you guys do a bit of role-playing. Corey, you are going to be a strategist for, for Minister Morna Fortier. That is your role in, in, in the next question that I'm going to ask you. Carter, you are a 
long respected labor strategists. You have seen these public relations fights. You have seen and you have won over the public. It's a grind out. No one may win. Quote unquote. I, I accept that initial answer by both of you, but someone could lose more. And so what I want to kind of think about is we enter week two right now. We're in the second week. Carter, the way I see it, tell me if you guys, and this is a question to both of you to maybe establish the terrain before I kind of give you your assign, assignment, so to speak. Okay. But as this week goes on, and as time goes on to week two, week three, let's say that both sides are in it for the long haul, the sticking points on remote work and the wages, it keeps, keeps going, that this could turn into a much more precarious situation for either side in terms of who the public starts blaming that their passport is not coming quickly enough. Yeah. That they're ta- that there's slip ups in the tax filings. I'm just throwing things out there, right? That the immigration side is is not moving as as speedily as it should. And your jobs respectively for each of the the, the sort of the blocks that you represent is to ensure your side gets blamed less. You're not, not about the win, but you ensure that you don't necessarily hold the bag. Carter, I'm going to go to you first. What are you doing today, as in tomorrow morning? You're going out again. You're doing the same demonstrations at ports. You're out on the streets. You're you know, cooking hot dogs, getting the fines, doing the earned media that they have been doing to summarize a few of the tactics, to summarize you know, uh, some of the pain points I've been trying to give to the government. What are you doing going forward to prevent that when this situation gets more precarious and that that third dimension, i.e. the public, gets involved and gets pissed? that they're not getting pissed or they're getting less pissed at you? Oh, that's really tricky. Um, you know, I want to say, I want to say something along the lines of finding a way to continue to serve the population in some fashion. So, you know, th- th- this is about public service, right? Um, the, the, the PSAC workers are public service workers first and foremost. Is there a way that we could, in fact, still continue to serve the public and maintain the uh, the, the strike. And I might do things like uh, public information days where we're going to help people with their applications so that the, we know that people's applications are filled out 100% correctly so that when it does come time for this strike to come to its natural end, um, your application will be able to be processed smoothly and, and, and quickly because you filled it out properly. Um, like I might do those types of things where we do uh, Zoom meetings um, to help people with those applications or uh, answer questions that they may have about uh, about what's going on in in the civil service and what they need to uh, be thinking about with with their applications. Just something to continue and remind people um, that you're actually in the mm. public service business. Uh, that's basically all I have because I'll be honest. Most most of the time, in a, in a public strike like this, both sides lose face. Both sides do worse. And I, I would just, expect that both sides uh, will continue to do work. I'm going to go to Corey in a second, but I'll give you some food for thought, Carter. While I go to Corey, maybe think about some of these questions, maybe even tactically. Okay. Are you doing advertising? Are you doing any sort of community relations? I don't have to answer it yet. I'm going to go to yeah. Corey. Are you doing media relations? Are you trying to go? Are you? How are you trying to provide? You said trying to provide value. Are you doing anything else to provide a, a warm hug or a halo to your brand, to your workers? Uh, think about that while I go to Corey, who's working with the minister on this one. 
And the minister seems to say, we're not doing any back to work legislation. The sticking points are still the wages. Corey, this gets precarious. And you also have an added dimension beyond the public. You got a snipey Pierre Polyev who's told you that your government can't do the fucking basics. And as soon as more passports get more delayed in the summer vacation season, you also have to factor in for that. So you're, there's a, another sort of political element to it, too. Uh, just one of them. I'm just, I'm just spitballing yeah. with you here. How are you, same question, as this potentially becomes more precarious, losing less? It's all about passing the reasonable person test, right? And there's a couple of things you can do to to wrong foot the, the union. But I think fundamentally, your strategy has to be about narrowing the scope of time and making the comparison to you, you being the Canadian out there who's hearing about this. Because I think in kind of a general sense, people are sympathetic, and we know from polling, uh, to the, the wage request from public sector workers. And I think if you look over the long term, you can really see what the erosion has been in public sector wages over time, right? But if you can narrow it you know, to this deal in this moment, what you are offering is the federal government is 9% over three years, but 9% is a lot more than what a lot of people have gotten in this moment. And I think that you have the ability to say, we support our public sector unions. We always have. That's why we're offering like a very generous 9%. But there's that's kind of the upper threshold of the generosity we can provide. And don't get us wrong. It's not because it's, it's not a gift. These people work hard. And that's why we're, we found, we scraped, you know, we got into the couch cushions. We found the money for 9%. But 9% is is as far as we can go because we've got a, a challenge with inflation in this country. We can't exacerbate it by paying public sector employees more. You see how you tie it to an anxiety about cost of living uh -huh. that people have there. And uh, the, the 9% is, um, you know, is very generous. It's far more than what the, uh, you know, average Canadian is finding at this particular moment. And, you know, we think it's the right thing to do. We think it's it's important that the public sector pays good wages, but this is as far as we can go. So limit it, tie it to the issues of the day, the anxiety, and the other thing, because the other one of the other big legs of this stool, at least the other one people is talking about, is remote work. Uh -huh. And we talked a little bit about this uh, last time we talked about this issue, but most Canadians cannot work remotely. A quarter of Canadians work in sales and service. You know, when you start yeah. layering in all of the other areas... The majority of Canadians do not have the ability to work remotely. And so, again, I think you make it about them, them being Canadians, and you say, we want a flexible workplace, and we're looking at ways we can increase flexibility. But let's be really clear, public sector employees are there to serve the public, and we need to make sure that there's the ability to meet the public the way they want to be met and serve the public the way they want to be served. So no, we can't enshrine the right, you know, to work remotely. That's just that we can't do that because that would be failing you as Canadians and failing our mission as public service. So th these are the two tactics I would take. Hmm. I also think that I would lean a lot more on that second one in some ways, because I think that that's probably the one that, um, that the public service is weaker on. Uh, I think PSAC looks a little bit entitled to be suggesting that they have a right to remote work because many, many Canadians, that will just not resonate with them. Corey, uh, Carter, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to go back to your, your suite of tactics. Think about this, Corey. There are certain things the government can't do. 
There's certain things the government can do. So unlike Carter, who if, you know, wisely or not, if he chose to take out advertising, government probably can't do that. They can't do a 9% ad campaign that says that's willing as much. So so think about think about uh, your tactics, suite, suite of tactics. What would you do? I mean, what would you do? The what, government can do that. What, I mean, there, there are rules. It's tricky. It's complicated. It's a, it's an interesting area. You don't want to be accused of bargaining in bad faith. Uh, sometimes people hide between not wanting to bargain in bad faith. Um, you're supposed to work through, you know, the the collective uh, agreements and you know the representatives of people. But you do have the ability to advertise, right? You just have to be very careful and very thoughtful. And there are red lines you can't cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ultimately, if I were the government, I wouldn't shoot first. But I can shoot biggest because I got a fuckload more money than PSAC does. That's tell me, for sure. tell me why you wouldn't shoot first, Carter. I'm coming to you. I'm, I'm chatting with the court. Why wouldn't you shoot first? If if preventing the blame for the situation getting more precarious, why would you not shoot first? Tell me why. Well, because you're the big guy, right? And it never looks good when the big guy attacks the little guy. And there are also very practical considerations around bargaining in bad faith that you are much more likely to run afoul of if you are the employer than the worker. So uh, by by PSAC moving into advertising first, that gives you a little bit more range of motion. It's not to say you couldn't. I think you just have to be mm. very careful and very thoughtful about that. And um, and you don't want to look like you are being the heavy I will say, when you have a third of your workforce out on strike, you can certainly afford a lot of advertising as well. Carter, what do you think? Tell me about your strategy. I asked you to think about some tactics. I said yeah. community relations, media relations, advertising. I may even add another one. Would you go and recruit opposition party MPs and leaders and ask them to join forces where to find soft tissue within the government? What are you doing? The, the strategic goal objective is simple. Get blamed less, lose less when this situation goes on and on. You are you are trying to ensure you do not necessarily get the blame and ergo perhaps have the better negotiating position and perhaps a little bit more of the leverage. Corey's just mentioned you are the smaller guy in the situation, at least it relates to the two players. Are you using that to your advantage? Talk to me about some of your tactics now that you've had some time to think about it. Yeah, I'm probably I'm probably going to avoid advertising. Well, I might do things like advertising a day, um, pushing out info. You know, tell, tell me what. Tell me why you're avo- avoiding it. Well, I'm tell avoiding advertising because I don't want to turn into an advertising war. I don't want to have. Um, That'd be fighting on ground. You'd be relatively weaker on. I yeah, I mean, right. This is this. I want to look like I can't afford advertising. I don't want to be showing off the fact that I've got probably some sort of a war chest for this particular um, action, this job action. I mean, Mm -hmm. I would imagine that it's a significant war chest. I would imagine that I can't remember the last, uh, the last job action taken by federal workers, but but I would imagine it was quite some time ago. Uh, And as a result, there's probably a lot of money in, in the, in the union's coffers. Um, So, you probably have the resources to advertise. You probably have the resources to push out all kinds of different things, but I, I just wouldn't do it. Um, I think that you want to appear like you're poor. You want to appear like you're fighting for the little guy. And the tools and tactics for fighting for the little guy are to do media relations, to push out uh, small ideas, small small elements, uh, like what I was talking about with the, you know, the, the helping people, you know, like I would do stuff like that through the media. I wouldn't, 
run ads. Like I, you maybe drop some brochures in key areas or something like that to say, you know, we'll be having this special day where we'll be helping people with their uh, immigration uh, forms to make sure that you and your families are all ready. Um, you know, when we do get back to when the government finally deems to, uh, to allow us back to work, um, those are the types of things I would do, but just don't put yourself in a position where you get into a shooting war with, um, with the government because they just, they've got more things to shoot with and you just, you do not want to look like you've got any resources. That's really the key. You want to appear to be the small guy, even though a lot of these unions, and I would be willing to bet the PSAC has a significant war chest. Can can I just dig, dig into the advertising strategy? This is interesting now. First, from a, just a, uh, you would not advertise because you feel like it's losing train, but that only matters if you feel like the government would be willing to fire their bazooka of advertising on you. If you advertise, is that not correct? So, like, mm. you, you, I get your first point about looking small, but you're still going to be small regardless. I guess is my my counter argument. Is that not true, Carter? Yeah, but like, you want to look or, small. Or you you want to look tiny. You want to look as small as possible. And if you're advertising, you don't look tiny. At the potential, at the potential expense of not getting your message out and, and building goodwill. Well, how are you not getting your message out? I mean, I'm still saying we're going to do a media relations campaign. I'm going to shift the targets a little bit by doing media relations campaigns around working t- for Canadians, of, of helping people. We're in the public service business. Let's serve the public. I think that that's where things are falling down right now. All that I'm seeing, and again, recognizing mm. that we're out here in the... Uh, in the hinterland where we don't see a tremendous number of public servants. I mean, this is one of the reasons that Albertans get away with voting uh, conservative all the time. We just don't have these huge uh, public uh, organizations to interface with. So why, why would I, why would I risk it? You know, why would I risk potentially being in a battle with the, with the, with the, um, with the government? Why would I risk looking like I'm, uh, the big, the big dog when being the little dog is probably what I, I need in order to be successful. Right. So you're telling me this is not about relative size compared to the government. It's about on the public side that any sense of might or any sense of flexing is perhaps not that, uh, totally positive it. for you. Yeah. Uh, Corey, you were wanting to, it seemed like you wanted to jump in here. I'll, I'll let you do that. If there was anything you wanted to jump in and then I, I do want to move it on to sort of a broader suite of, of, of strategies here. Yeah, bargaining is supposed to happen at the table. And the minute you get into kind of these random advertising wars, it's Mm -hmm. a little harder to draw it back to the table. And you actually create a bit of a justification, perhaps for, you know, actions such as, you know, going back to the the House of Commons and saying, well, we've just got to legislate back to work. Possible. Like, it's hard to say how all of these things are going to spin out. But, you know, I will say if, if PSAC had a bunch of advertising or even like a very strong campaign that was trying to get out into the public in different ways. Mm-hmm, and I felt mm-hmm. I needed to respond as the government. There are ways to do that. I, I don't think we need to get that deep into the weeds in order to keep your nose clean, but I would go so big, so hard. I would just you would. shock and awe. Oh, big time. As I government, would, you would. Like, yeah, I would, you know, I think that there'd be an argument to be made for escalation and kind of like the, you know, the response that matches the action of okay, the let, union. But let, I'll tell you this. Let's play it out. Can we play it out for a sec? Sure. Let's, let's say Carter says, you know what? I am going to do a bit of advertising. I'm going to do like a standard, you know, warm hug. We're the servants. We want to get back to work. We're part of your community. We're going to, you know, that sort of ad, right? That sort of just general message. We're here to help. We love what we do sort of thing. 
how are you going big? What what are you going big about? I, I want to get into the specifics here because I think it is interesting because we might see it. This is I'm like, you know, like yeah. I, this could happen in some version of this. Yeah, I, I think I would make a, a a message that was targeted towards Canadians that were basically like, we know Canadians are concerned about access to services as this drags on. Uh, the government of Canada w- will continue to put, you know, very reasonable offers forward to try to resolve this. Our most recent offer was a 9% increase. I, you know, I don't know. I'd have to think about it and I'd have to work with some LR experts to make mm-hmm, sure that mm-hmm. I was staying on the right page of it. But ultimately it would be about trying to like, at least on its surface about creating care and comfort for Canadians, you know, causing them to feel a little bit you know, calmer about the current state of the situation, but then delivering those key messages that I had before about like, we, you know, we want to make sure that the, the public service continues to meet Canadians where they want to be, whether that be online or in person. We want to make sure that public servants are still well paid within, you know, the confines of our fiscal kind of en- envelope as a government. And I would go really hard on that and try to change public opinion aggressively um, because I do ultimately agree with Stephen. The longer these things go on, kind of the bloodier mm. it is for government. And so you you try to want to win it. You want to win in round one or two. You don't want to sit there uh, and win in round 10, just absolutely you know drained on the floor of the ring. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is... You, you want to go into those tactics pretty aggressively if you're going to go into the middle. Okay, Carter, I, I need to talk to you about this. Uh, ra- round this out for us. You are still the PSAC okay. genius, yeah. the strategist that they have, have you know, the labor yeah. hero. You've done this many times, right? I'm giving the accolades, oh, Carter. Yeah. The wind Labor loves back, me. Okay? Labor loves me. Yeah. What, what's the one thing that's keeping you up at night? That if Corey, as Minister Fortier slash the government, did, you'd be like, ah, oh, fuck. I need to prepare for. I need to make sure I have this readied. And we're talking not about the actual negotiation and the bargaining, just to be absolutely clear, right? We're talking about the public opinion still. Still the same frame, right? Still the same frame. If this gets more precarious, if this situation gets worse, what's one thing that Corey could do first, that Corey might do, that you're preparing for? Um, It could be some of the things we mentioned here. It could be the advertising. He could go first on it. It could be a PR play that could go first. It could be winning over the goodwill of people with a strategy or a tactic. But how? what is it for you? And how are you preparing? Corey, same question coming to you in a second for the other I side. think the only thing that I'm worried about is actually polling. I think that there's very little that the government can do that's really going to fundamentally shift the, the field. But what the general population can do uh, by choosing to take the other side would scare the crap out of me. Um, because as soon as the government feels like they've got the wind in their sails, that just avails them other opportunities. Um, as soon as, you know, this isn't necessarily a government that is ideologically, uh, you know, kind of prone to legislate Peace Act back to work. But if it goes on long enough and the general population kind of demands that type of action, then this government will do what the general population demands. And that that's probably what I'm the most concerned about. I'm not really worried about any stunts or any communications or anything like that. I just don't feel like um, that's going to necessarily help this government. But time is my biggest enemy. Time is the thing that I'm probably the most concerned about because over time, that attitude will change. And over, you think over t- if if time can I can I am I putting words in your mouth that's saying time going on is net negative for you than the government? Well, 
with this each passing day getting legislated back to work getting a a, a solution imposed upon huh. us uh that is the thing that i'm most worried about because you know the government holds a lot of cards. I mean, they don't hold all the cards, obviously, because we're out on strike and we're putting, you know, we're using our tools that we have at our disposal. But I'm just, you know, I just don't want public opinion to turn against us. That's the thing that would be the most upsetting, the most challenging for the members, because as soon as the public opinion shifts, um, <clears throat> then all of a sudden the government's got a whole new set of tools that they can use and we don't have any. The public opinion, as I mentioned, and I may have driven by it very quickly, it's either split or it's showing still some support for, for PSAC. So they seem to have the 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 win, so to speak, if you can call it that, on the public opinion side. Same question for you. What is one thing that as the government, as you sit there, as you kind of look at this, that you see that Carter and his crew at PSAC could do in this war of public opinion that you'd be like, I need to prepare for this I need to be ready for this. What is that thing tactically, strategically, message-wise for you? Yeah, the problem, my, I, I, it's a bit of a cop-out, but it's. I think this really does come down to public opinion for this particular mm. government for us too. You know, if I was uh, on the minister's side, because if Stephen gets to a point where 70% of Canadians think the government is being unreasonable, right? Uh, that's a real challenge because that means anything even that I would legislate back in probably in order to maintain public opinion and not really risk bleeding to the NDP in some key areas would require a generosity that risks burning the chance of the conservatives supporting it and and kind of a fundamental chaos that might occur from there too. And the breakdowns matter a lot. It's tough to pull from a government point of view, but the, I'm sure their parties are polling as well to understand what the party support is and how it aligns. And, you know, in, in a way, if the majority of the public is with, um, is with PSAC, that's irrelevant if it's if it's a group of the public that's not movable and not a consideration in an election. So it's understanding the nuances of public opinion and understanding where it might be causing long-term pain and breaking some long-term coalition building. The other thing that I think from a tactic would cause a lot of pressure on the government would be actually finding those coalitions with other public sector unions, with other unions more generally, this thing spreading in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and you mean not necessarily with other work stoppages or strikes, just to be clear, or do you mean that? I, I mean, I think that would be the most extreme manifestation mm. of it, but I actually just mean that um, more aggressive action in solidarity from labor in terms of perhaps even other unions running ads about how poorly the government is treating Peace Act, right? And, you know, it's important that Canadians know that the stakes are here. And, and just in general, burning that labor relationship that Justin Trudeau has worked pretty hard to try to develop, right? And and start eroding that. So I, I actually think those would be pretty sensible tactics for Peace Act to be really leaning into pretty heavily too and say like, listen, I know uh, there, there are direct actions we can take, but we also know that in some ways having other people take direct actions and us, you know, down the road, maybe doing the same would, would be very powerful as well. And, and the labor movement should act as one here. I think that would cause a little bit more heartburn for the government. We're going to leave that segment there, Stephen Carter, moving on to our final segment, or over, under, and our landing round. That was a tough round. segment. Uh, I, like that was... You, yeah, you're welcome. You, you challenged make you, us Make today. you stretch your wow. brain. Make you stretch your brain, Stephen Carter. Listen, tell me this. PSAC, Pierre Polyev. X factor, non factor. What is he projecting? Into I the think future? he's a non factor because he's not seen by mm. he's not seen by the union as someone who's helpful. And if if there was an election tomorrow, um, you know if 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 
Trudeau was like, oh, you know, I may have to go to an election over this. Um, then I think that you could use him almost as a bargaining tool to get to a solution because he would be seen by um, by PSAC members at least to to be less uh, less good to negotiate with. How's that? No, that's that's proper English that's less as far good. as I know. That's- yeah, Carter Corey. Moving over to you, Pierre Polyev, X-Factor, non-factor, as it relates to the ongoing PSAC negotiations. X-Factor. Um, I'm not quite sure how it would play out and the sequencing of it, but I think that he would be a fairly powerful boogeyman, not just in the sense that Stephen talked about as a potential prime minister, but also if you need to legislate a deal in some way, shape or form, and you require the conservatives in order to legislate that deal, that's, I, that's an interesting X-Factor yeah. to me. Right. And I think that that's something that hanging over the entire thing could get weird. I mean, that would. Well, Corey, I'm going to stick with you, stick with you on this. Jagmeet Singh, X factor, non factor on PSAC negotiations. I've, I mean, fundamentally, a, a non factor, unless he wants to do something that would be so damaging to his own uh, you know, prospects that it, it would boggle my mind. He like, is like, so. Like- so- yeah, like support back to work legislation. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Right? Right. But that's not going to happen. And I think because it's not going to happen, non-factor. His his position is baked in. Yeah. It is not going to change things here. This is really about the liberals and the conservatives in terms of the legislative routes. And it's about mm-hmm. the government and the union in terms of the non-legislative routes. Carter, do you agree? Is it just that black and white that Jagmeet Singh doesn't really get much credit here because his position's already baked in? They kind of knew where he was going to be. He's there. X factor, non. I mean, I think that he's a non-factor for the most part, but I think where he could become an X factor is if he suggests that if the Liberal government goes to uh, legislating these uh, this union back to work um, and uses the Conservatives to do so, then that would end their alliance, and they, he would then seek uh, dissolution of the government uh, at the first available opportunity. Um, if that were the case, then. That's a twist. You know, uh, that would that would make him a significant factor in this because all of a sudden Trudeau's hands are completely tied. However, um, that would also require that he develop something of a political strategy cap- capability and a backbone, um, both of which we have not seen in any real uh, demonstration of late. Corey, jump in okay. here. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm changing my answer. That's a good answer because if it all of a sudden jeopardized the 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 quote unquote coalition, you know, the supply agreement, that holy cow! I mean, that could be such a game changer in in politics here. Maybe not necessarily to the NDP's advantage, shall I say? But it really depends on how a lot of things play out in the next bit. Carter, a question for you: PSAC negotiations, you know, public, tense. Uh, winners and losers, right? Even though you guys, you know, yeah. it clearly established that everyone loses, so to speak, in the public, it's a it's a movement that that politicians want to sometimes be attached to. That there's figures in the public that want to be attached to it, being on the right side of history, on the right side of making their commentary, so to speak. For others, for some, this is about the nine percent in this particular deal. For others, this is about making a broader point about capitalism or a broader point about how you know Justin Trudeau does X, Y, and Z. Carter, the question for you is very simple: A politician, federally, provincially, municipally, sitting on the sidelines right now that should get involved with their voice, because that's all they really can do in the ongoing PSAC negotiations, who would it be and why? Oh, brother. Um, (laughs) NDP leader in Saskatchewan? 
Tell me why. What you're just give me. I don't. I don't even need a hard answer. I just want like a line of thinking here. For the most part, like, it, this is going. It's fucking up so all like the oxygen. David Eby, right? You can't do a damn thing because you're going to run into your own problems, right? David Eby has to worry about his own situation as he's moving through. Um, you know, difficult challenge. You know, every every premier is going to have difficult uh, negotiations moving forward because it's been a difficult time. And no one's gotten enough money. Everybody wants more. There's not enough to go around, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it can't be anybody who's in, in office or in, in, a, in, a, in a position of power currently. Uh, it has to be someone who's ideologically uh, su- you know, supportive of, of PSAC, um, which, which mm. then you know, further limits the field because uh, it takes out anybody in Quebec or anybody in the Quebec government. It take, you know, there's not really a, uh, enough of a labor movement opportunity there uh it, there's no opportunity for rachel notley in in alberta she's in the middle of a you know an election the last thing she needs to be doing is is re-upping her you know her left-wing bona fides um this is really about a small part you know the the ndp in saskatchewan are eight points back at the saskatchewan party um they could be facing a real opportunity in the future and maybe this is the only way that they can get some attention um the home of the of the of the real labor movements uh maybe they can take away a swing at it but i just think it's too dangerous for anybody else to ah thank you for showing your work there that's actually very helpful in terms of how you outline that Corey. i've given you a bit more time to think which means that your answer needs to be exponentially better um who who is it for you politicians sitting on the sidelines they're watching PSAC happen they're watching this happen on the federal stage it's obviously something that impacts the whole country who should jump in with their voice on either side of this conversation that's currently on the sidelines yeah you know beck who is, by the way, the Saskatchewan NDP leader, I think that's an interesting one uh, for the reasons that Stephen said, but I actually don't know that there's a ton to gain in Saskatchewan with that particular position, at least in the current characterization. Maybe Styles, uh, Ontario NDP leader. Oh, maybe. Maybe. Um, but but I think probably more likely it's somebody who's trying to jump themselves a, a step, right? So mm. a city councillor in Ottawa who would like to be maybe an MP, or, you know, the mayor of Ottawa or something like that, uh, who can can go out and, and maybe they're in a very, you know, progressive or, or working class area and, and they can use this to show that they are going to champion it up and, and take more like a Bernie Sanders approach to politics and try to create a bit of a movement behind them. That's probably the opportunity. I don't know who that person would be. I truly yeah, but don't. the composite is interesting. I guess yeah. the question I have for you as a follow-up to this uh, as, as we close out in, in a second here, Carter, is you often talk about politicians going up against yeah. type. Could this be something for a, let's just use that composite backbencher that wants to do something for a conservative that's got grander ambitions or ambitions um, maybe outside of their current status and role to do something on? Or would you say no, n- not, no, not I mean, so it's much. an interesting uh, premise. I mean, uh, playing against type is very valuable most of the time, but this is a complex issue. And the the easiest place to play against type is when it's relatively a simple outcome and you're and you're able to just kind of mm. you know jump in on a simple issue and 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 show your morals or something along those lines um this feels to me like uh you know you you could get shit on by your cohort very very quickly if you did this so i probably would just say you know don't you know don't do the like 
make this Trudeau's problem and solution. This probably isn't anybody else's problem or solution. Corey, you want to you wanted to jump in on this? I've got one final question. I yeah, I just I have such a hard time fathoming somebody who wants a future in the Conservative Party saying I support thirteen point five percent wage increase and the ability to work from home. I think that they would be fucking dead on arrival. And so, unless your plan was to use this as an opportunity to bail from the Conservative, <laughs> Conservative Party, Party, yeah, my, yeah, my thinking was I don't, more I don't so. Get it. My thinking was more so like if if you needed to appeal to an area that is much more progressive in a, maybe another job, another position, et cetera. Um, or in one of those orange blue shifts, so just a, just a thought that I had. But Carter, let's round it out with this question. I had each of you kind of play a role. Carter, your one word advice for the government, and Corey, your one word advice for PSAC heading into uh, this second week, heading into the third week. What is your one word piece of advice for the other side, Carter? Settle. S- settle or settle. subtle? Sorry, settle. Could also no, be it's subtle. settle. Settle, settle. Settle, 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 settle. Corey, your one your one word piece of advice for, for PSEC as we as we enter the, the third potential week soon. Solidarity. And not just in the sense that you need to you hang together as a union or you fall apart, but you need to be thinking about solidarity with the broader labor movement and expanding the pain that a Justin Trudeau government that would like to be seen as a friend of labor feels. Fantastic. I cannot wait to do our next episode in the new uh, Calgary Arena, Carter. Oh, I'm yeah. just so excited. Well, that's going to be our next live show, right? We're going to sell, sell it out. I have been in talks yeah, with you them. Don't... You would not believe how much they're going to keep off our fucking ticket sales. Like, it is... Oh, that is ridiculous. It's insane. At least, at least someone's yeah. getting money back yeah. on the ticket sales. Uh, we're gonna leave it there. That's a wrap on episode ten fifty five of the Strategist. My name is Zane Velju. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan, and we'll see you next time.